Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. This podcast is about your future. What if the next years of your life can be the best years of your life? When full-time work becomes optional, you'll have the time to do all the things you've always wanted to do. If only you had the time. And soon you will. But to make the most of it, you'll need to be well-prepared. And that goes well beyond your financial planning. Each week, your host, Joe Casey, is inviting you into conversations with his guests to bring you insights, inspiration, and practical ideas to design your new life. A life you'll build around what matters most to you and on your own terms. Let's get started. Even though this podcast has the word retirement in its title, the word retirement falls short in describing what this phase of life is really all about. I recently read a book that captures it better. The title is The Vintage Years, Finding Your Inner Artist, Writer, Musician, Visual Artist After 60. And today I'll be talking with the author, Dr. Francine Toder. The book takes a look at brain science in practical, useful ways and opens a door into the lives of late-blooming artists who first took up their pursuits after they turned 60. The book explains why this time of life may actually have many advantages in terms of mastery of the arts in ways that are difficult for younger people and younger brains to do. And you'll also learn why kicking back and relaxing might be one version of retirement, but if you're interested in keeping sharp, the road all goes through three factors of novelty, complexity, and problem solving. Francine Toder, PhD, is an emeritus faculty member of California State University, Sacramento, and is a clinical psychologist who recently retired from private practice. She's also the author of a number of previous books, When Your Child is Gone, Learning to Live Again, and Your Kids Are Grown, Moving On with or without them. In addition to those books and the vintage years, she's also the author of a more recent book, Inward Traveler, 51 Ways to Explore the World Mindfully. She resides with her husband in the San Francisco Bay Area, where she practices the cello daily. Great to meet you, and thanks for taking the time to join us today. Oh, my pleasure. So what are a few key things we should know about our aging brains? Well, unlike the things I learned in graduate school 50 years ago that implied that neuronal production in your brain stops at around age 40 and it's downhill from there, which wasn't relevant at the time. But when I was 60 and started doing research for this book, I realized that that would be a terrible thing for me if it were still true. And current research, of course, indicates that it is not true. Neuronal production continues and connections between neurons continues. And so our brains continue to be active and relevant and work just fine for most of us for the rest of our lives. So there's hope for me yet. (laughs) 
hope for all of us. And that's why I did it, frankly, when I was doing my research, I wanted to make sure that there was hope for me. So what are the benefits of engaging in the arts after the age of 60? Well, there's a benefit in doing those things that are good for your brain, uh, good for you socially, so you can keep interacting with people. And the things that have cognitive benefits are those things that have novelty, complexity, and are problem-solving kind of things, which means any kind of new thing that you engage in is really, uh, you get a good bang for your buck out of that. So for you, it's not just about theory. Could you please tell us the story of how you took up learning an instrument as you contemplated your own retirement, even though, as you wrote, you weren't particularly musical? I was not musical at all. And everyone around me said, you're crazy. And the people I knew who were, in, who were musicians said, it's impossible to learn the cello at your age. And so the more I heard that, the more motivated I became to prove them wrong. And I did my research and looked around to see whether anyone in my age group, and at that point, by the way, I was 70 when I retired from my private practice as a psychologist. And I, I found a, a video of a woman who was in her 90s who was getting cello lessons. And I thought, well, she can do it. So can I. And the story is kind of entertaining, so I'll take a minute to share it. I dragged my husband to a music shop in San Francisco, and I said, let's just look around at cellos. And when I finished looking around, I had rented a cello, a cello case, a bow, and all of the accoutrement that goes with playing a cello. And that was not my plan. And then I got it home, and I set it all up, and I had bought a stand and got ready to play and started playing. Of course, you can't play. And it sounds worse than nonsense. It's just awful. And it was kind of disappointing. I guess I thought I could just start playing. But I had to find a teacher. And of course, I was very careful in finding a teacher who taught adults because adults learn differently than children. And you have to be careful when you're teaching adults to try to reach them in the best way possible. Well, long story short, I will say 12 years later, not only do I play the cello every day, even though it's torture somehow, and I'm still not musical, but I stay at it. And my husband says, do you remember why you started this? It's because you wanted to, not because you were going to become the next Yo-Yo Ma, and I never will. But I stayed with it. And now I play with a community orchestra. I've played in string quartets, not to perform. And that's the other advantage of being at the stage in life. You don't have to perform for anyone but yourself. That's the story. <laughs> it's a great story. Thanks for sharing that. You point out in your book, The Vintage Years, that neuroplasticity is not automatic. We have to work at it. How should people think about the value of active learning, taking up something new and something challenging in later life? Well, because the brain is basically neuroplasticity means it's plastic. It, it continues shaping itself. And the way it does that is through, as I've said, novelty, complexity, and problem solving. So let's say you play golf and you like to play golf and you've been playing golf for 40 years. Well, I'd say either you take up another sport or you learn to hold a club in your opposite hand, which is almost impossible and very counterintuitive. And most people would not like it, but that has the benefits of what I call novelty and problem solving. It would be the same way if you were a knitter. I'd say take up a different craft or knit something totally different in a different way. 
So if you don't have to change hobbies, you just have to change the way you do it. Or find a hobby, even if you didn't know what you wanted, you could go back to something you did as a child, which is what I explored when I interviewed a bunch of people. What did you do when you were a child? And did that have any effect on what you find, finally did when you were 60 or 70 or 80? And what were some of the things that people cited that they'd love to do as a child that they brought back? Well, I'll tell you, the oldest person I interviewed was in his 90s, and he lived in, actually, he lived in New Jersey, and he was a wood sculptor, but he didn't start sculpting until he was in his 60s and had retired and was actually pretty bored. And when I interviewed him, I said, what did you do when you were a child to entertain yourself? Well, he said, in those days, we didn't really have the kind of toys that kids have today. He said, so what I would do, and he never thought about this in relation to his his later hobby, but what he would do is get a cake of ivory soap. Do you remember ivory soap? Absolutely. (laughs) And he would carve it and he would make it into objects. You know, it's a soft material and it's kind of like soapstone in a way. And he would make objects with it. And it never occurred to him from that moment where he said it to me since his childhood that wood sculpturing is pretty much the same process. And he went back to that without ever remembering this earlier thing that he did. And with a lot of people I interviewed, they talked about something they'd done as a child, finger painting, building things, even building three-corner hats in summer camp or lanyards. Those same people later on realized that they liked to do things with their hands, and those were some of the things they could do. So I know our listeners pretty well by now, and I can guarantee that some people listening are saying, that's great. I get it. It's very beneficial. But I'm just really not artistic. I'm not creative. And I was thinking, we start out in grade school on kind of a level playing field. We're all involved in art and creativity. How does adulthood end up inhibiting our creativity? We start out as young children, very involved in the arts. If you ever went to a concert and watched little kids, what are they doing? They're dancing. Did anyone ever teach them how to dance? No. But I've met seniors who go back into tap dancing, ballet, modern dance, line dancing. And when they stop and think, they they were some of those kids that were dancing around. I have a four-year-old granddaughter who loves nothing better than to do watercolor painting. And she has a pretty good idea, as as I watch her, of composition, design, colors. I mean, no one has to teach her what to do. So what? where does it go wrong? Well, as kids go to school, they're socialized. And part of socializing kids is getting them to do, you know, reading, writing, arithmetic, and all of those things. They wind up taking a priority. And as kids grow older, even if they have talent, unless they're identified as really Uh, unique and brilliant in that thing, there really is no support because most parents don't want a child who becomes a starving artist, whether the artist is a a writer, a musician, or a, uh, you know, a designer of, of anything else, because those occupations tend not to pay very well. So even if you had talent, and I'll give you an example, my husband played the, the violin as a child, When he got to junior high, he had to take two public buses and carry a violin case. Well, that wasn't really very cool. So he he had peer pressure. He stopped playing. So again, childhood happens and it interferes with developing your art. 
midlife happens and then you're way too busy. So the first time you have a chance to really think about it is when you get to what we call retirement age. And there's that word retirement. I love the title of your book, The Vintage Years, and how it describes this phase of life in a way that really retirement does not. How should people, in your opinion, think about this phase of life? Well, this is the richest stage in life. For one thing, I am a psychologist, so I look at the world through psychologists' eyes. When you get to this stage of life, your mental health is probably better than it's ever been. And partly, and this may surprise some people, it's because the drop-off in certain hormones, estrogen and testosterone and some other ones that pull for other kinds of activities. And when those are gone, there is more room for taking up something new. And so besides that, at this point, we have wisdom. And wisdom means, and I'll give you an example, kids have little bookcases full of half a dozen books. And by the time you're out of school, you've got a big bookcase. And by the time you're 60, you've got a huge bookcase. Well, it's the same way in your brain. You have a huge amount of storage in your brain. And that between excellent problem-solving skills that young people don't even have, those two things together make this the richest stage in life. And vintage sort of is relevant to that. So for your book, you interviewed late-blooming musicians, visual artists, writers, dancers, and people involved in theater. What's one story you can share that gives a sense of their life in this phase? Well, I pulled out one that I love because it's about someone, it's in the ebook. It wasn't, it didn't make it into the hardcover book, but it is in the ebook. And it, and it's called Rochelle, the Metal Sculptor. And I'll just read a paragraph from that because I think it really describes it well. Try to imagine a 78-year-old woman, barely over five feet tall, wielding an acetylene torch to create art with found metal. Perhaps parts of wrecked cars getting ready to be salvaged or bed springs repurposed, reshaped and reimagined. That would be Rochelle, a self-taught sculptor who has been at her trade since she was 58. Now, she had no talent, according to her, at all. But when she got to be in her mid-40s and 50s, she was an office manager and got very close to the owner of the business. And when he was dying, he said to her, I'll read those words to you, Rochelle, you've always talked about being an artist. Don't die wondering. I'm leaving with a lot of unfulfilled dreams, and I don't want that to happen to you. And he said to her, she said she remembered his words, which were, quote, it's never too soon and it's never too late. Well, she thought when she was a child, she wanted to do some artistic work, but her family discouraged her. They didn't think it was practical. She came from a working class family in Western Pennsylvania. and. She forgot all about her art for years. And then she married a professional athlete and they traveled a lot. So it was focused on his life, not hers. And then when when he retired, that's when she started noticing that she was looking around in junkyards for parts and didn't know why. Long story short, she's a famous metal sculptor. We call junk sculpture here. You're using junk parts. Uh, And she's... She's courted all over the world for her very large pieces. In her front yard, she's got pieces that are like 12 feet tall that she's done. And picture this five-foot woman 
with an acetylene torch. And she's still at it. She's in her late 80s now. She's a neighbor of mine. That's how I met her. And she never thought she had any talent. So there you go. Common theme. So you have a chapter which includes two useful decision trees for people considering whether to retire or not. And you point out that there are a lot of factors to consider. What advice would you offer someone listening on how to think that decision of whether to retire or not through? Well, the first two things to think about is, do you want to continue work or do you want to retire? Sometimes people aren't sure. And so you wait till you feel it percolating inside of you. But you can then look at some other possibilities. Do I need to work would, of course, be a consideration. If you need to work, then you could don't have to stay in the same business or occupation if you are tired of it. So you might do something else. If you still like what you're doing, then there's no decision to be made. So you just work down the decision tree to make decisions about which way feels right to go. There are all kinds of opportunities. If you don't need the money, there's volunteer work. There's hobbies that could turn into something that pays the bills. Like in Rochelle's case, she makes plenty of money. That was her goal all along. But unlike every other person I interviewed, none of the others were doing it to make money. And yet some of them wound up doing that. So there are lots of considerations. And the purpose of the decision tree is to help you rule in and rule out various kinds of decisions. Very helpful. What recommendations would you offer listeners on how to keep their brains finely tuned? All of the research, both when I wrote the book and currently, and I'm happy to say that there isn't anything that's happened since I wrote the book that would refute anything I I wrote or make anything I wrote kind of redundant or unnecessary. The most important thing is exercise. And while that isn't an art form, it certainly can be added to an art form. Uh, Many of the the artists who I interviewed did some kind of physical thing to facilitate their readiness for pursuing their art form. Even the 90-something artist who was a wood sculptor who I mentioned earlier, when I went to interview him, he showed me the hand weights that he used to kind of get ready for doing his sculpturing. And even though he used a walker, he had leg lifts that he showed me he could do with weights on them. So no matter what your level of ability is or whether you're handicapped or you're not, there's something you could be doing. Another one, a writer, Caroline, in the book, before she would do any writing, she'd take a long walk in the woods that were adjacent to where she lived. So exercise, all of the research indicates that's the most critical thing. Don't forget about your body. And so that's the key thing. The second thing is to do something that, again, I go back to this idea of these three things that I sort of teased out of all of the literature that I read was novelty, creativity, and problem solving. Novelty, newness, do something new. Doesn't matter what it is. And you could try anything. You know, you, if you've never been a gardener, you could start gardening. If you are a gardener and you like flowers, try photographing them or painting them. And this is this is what I observed with a lot of the people I interviewed. They sort of didn't have a plan. It just evolved. But often it evolves out of some kind of physical activity. So that's critical. And the complexity means if you're doing something, make sure it requires something that's just not too easy. Learning a foreign language is a good example of that. It is really difficult and it's good for your brain. 
You don't have to be proficient. You never have to speak to another soul. You're doing it for yourself. Uh, but you might find that there are ways in which you connect with other people around that activity as well. So as you mentioned, retirement can include work as well, and things evolve over time. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about what you're doing currently with guided autobiography. I'd be happy to. Well, one of the things, first of all, there's a longevity project at Stanford University that focuses on this stage of life. And Laura Carstensen, who is the director there, has done a lot of writing in which she says people should work till the day they die and maybe take more time off in midlife. Well, I'm not sure that can happen for financial reasons and raising family and that sort of thing. But definitely the idea of finding something exciting to do later in life, I think, is really key. And in the last several months, I've decided I'm a certified guided autobiography teacher. So the short name for that is GAB, G-A-B. And I'm doing GAB groups, which are six-person group, very small, in which people pick snippets of their lives and write about them. And it's not memoir writing, and it's not autobiography writing. And the goal is to just write, because writing is good for your brain. Whatever you write about. I mean, maybe something a little bit longer than a grocery list, but still writing. And in this case, two pages of writing. And so people get prompts that help them cue memories from their lives on a certain topic. And then they write two pages and come to the group and share that by reading it to the other members who then give her or him feedback on what that felt like to them. Positive, nurturing feedback, not like a writing group where you're critiquing someone's writing, but one where you hear something and it it moves something in you and you share that with them. And each of the six people does that for each session. And it's very evocative of emotion, of memories. And for people who are working on a memoir or an autobiography, it helps bring up other ideas that perhaps they've forgotten about. Great process. If you're going to Gab, that sounds like a very meaningful way to do it. And people will find a link to your website in the show notes. And if they're interested pursuing that further, but boy, that's very beneficial from what I've heard of it in terms of a process. So great to hear you involved. Thank in you. And you bring a lot of experience to the table from different angles and disciplines. To Thank really you. Well, you know, and although I'm a psychologist, I have to make clear this is not psychotherapy. Yes. It's not group psychotherapy, but the process can be therapeutic. And also, whether it's me or another GAB instructor, a lot of the classes are, are available online by Zoom. So consider that if, if you don't feel particularly mobile. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom with us today. Great book. Really enjoyed it. Took a lot away from it and as well from our conversation today. Thank you, Joe, so much. Thanks, Francine. Time for takeaways. Three ideas to consider adding to your to-do list following this podcast conversation. Number one, embrace the power of new. I think this is a really important idea. Sometimes when working with clients, people still have this nagging idea that this retirement phase of life is a retreat, kick back, relax. But it's actually not. You can, as Dr. Toto said, you now have some room, more room, to take up something new. And not just something new, you want to embrace the novelty, but something that has complexity and is challenging, something that really requires you to problem solve. 
What's that going to be for you? There's a new year ahead. What's one new thing you want to add to your list? Number two, do it for you. This relates to her points about she wasn't trying to be the next Yo-Yo Ma, and others that she interviewed were really not performing, per se. It's really about doing it, the activity for your growth, development, continued learning, and because often it's fun and rewarding. So do it, not for performance, but do it for you. And number three, what's that exciting thing you're going to do in later life? This was related to the first, but I think pretty key. What are those things that are on your list to explore that might really be an adventure, something exciting, something interesting, something rewarding? So as we head into the new year, think about what that might be for you. Thanks for listening to the Retirement Wisdom Podcast. Just one more thing before you take off. Is it time to design your new life after you graduate from the world of full-time work? Go to retirementwisdom.com and schedule a call today with Joe Casey. Working with an experienced coach like Joe can help you explore new possibilities and gain clarity on your future. Thank you for listening to the Retirement Wisdom Podcast. See you next week. Thank you.